Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for tuning in to the Consumer's Law Journal on ALRPRA's Law Talk Radio. Today is Thursday, October 14th, and I am your host, Nick Augustine. The show is produced by ALRPRA Incorporated, a national law practice management agency headquartered downtown Chicago, Illinois, and serving greater Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, and Washington, D.C. We help manage our clients' business so they can spend more time practicing law. Today's guest is private investigator Susan Carlson of Carlson Investigations, located in uh, Evanston, Illinois. After completing a three-year agency apprenticeship, Susan successfully set for the Illinois State Licensing Exam to receive her Class A private detective license, and in 2004 opened her own business, Carlson Investigations. Here's a web link www.carlsoninvestigations.com. Again, susancarlsoninvestigations.com. If you Google search that, you'll uh, pull up the first link to the agency. Also, in November of 2005, after a year of training and successful completion of a detailed entrance exam, Susan Carlson received her certification in the Reed Technique of Interview and Interrogation and holds a membership in the Reed Institute, the undisputed world authority in truth detection. In fact, Susan is the only private investigator in Illinois to achieve this respected certification. In June of 2009, Susan was awarded the CLI status to become a certified legal investigator. The CLI designation is only conferred to those who experienced legal investigators who pass stringent oral and written examinations and author a white paper that is graded and subsequently published in a national investigative trade publications. Initiated in 1979, the CLE examination is administered by a professional certification board of the National Association of Legal Investigators, Incorporated, twice a year. Currently, there are only 76 CLIs in the world, thus establishing an elite group of board-certified legal investigators. It is our pleasure to have Susan Carlson here with us today, and we look forward to sharing great information with you. But first, want to let you know that we will take our callers' questions either by email at info at ALRPRA.com or also by dialing 917-889-9732 and pressing option 1 to be placed in the caller queue. The telephone number again is area code 917-889-9732, option 1 for the caller queue. Also, all callers and email inquiries will be entered in the running to receive free admission to our upcoming event sponsored by ALRPRA, and that is titled Avoid lawyers avoiding legal and business pitfalls in social media. This event is going to be held in Chicago. Uh, We have a morning session Tuesday, October 19th, and an evening session Wednesday, October 27th. Regular price of admission to the event is $25, and those who cannot attend to the live event will be able to view the event via webinar and CDs and DVDs of the event and live uh, taped uh, video will be available after the fact. As a way of disclaimer, this is a general information program, and the advice shared on the show does not constitute legal advice. Results may vary based on specific facts and location. Communication with our attorney guests and other guests and callers on this show does not give rise to attorney-client or other professional relationships. 
If you have further questions, you are always encouraged to consult with an attorney or professional in your area. Finally, all callers do remain confidential and all rights to this broadcast are reserved by ALRPRA Incorporated. By uh, way of a general outline of today's program, we are going to talk with Susan Carlson about the general considerations of private investigators. Uh, we're going to ask when and how you can use a private investigator and the process for appropriately selecting a, a private investigator and uh, again, the credentials that should be uh, looked for when uh, trying to, uh, again, identify and find an investigator who is going to best suit your needs and have all the right credentials. Secondly, uh, for our second segment, we're going to talk about criminal defense and uh, both pretrial and post-conviction where private investigators can be of uh, great benefit. Third segment, we'll talk about domestic relations and family law, and then we'll round it out with personal injury and premises liability. So, without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guest, Susan Carlson. Susan, thanks for being with us today. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. All right. Well, Susan, why don't you go ahead and uh, tell us a little bit about what a PI does generally, what type of certi certifications are available, and what our attorneys should look for. And we're going to assume that for the benefit of our audience members listening that um, we're going to take the assumption that people have not used private investigators before and that this is all fresh information. So just like law school from day one, uh, we learn from the, the building blocks. That's what we're going to do here today. We're going to set the foundation and learn a little bit about private investigation, and then we're going to have some follow-up episodes and go into some further uh, aspects. So, uh, first of all, Susan, why don't you just give us some general information and background and um, take it away. Okay. Um, first of all, I like to think of myself as, as an extension of the lawyer. Whatever the lawyer's needs are, he can't always accomplish that by himself. He needs a private investigator to find information for him that's going to help him or her win the case. And sometimes I will compare myself to I'm the, the weapon, I'm the gun, the attorney shoots the gun, and I'm the bullet. And bullets are pieces of information. What is going to help to win that case? That's how I see an overview of a private investigator. One of the things that I think is very important, again, depending on the case, primary key thing for a private investigator is witness interviews. No matter what type of case we're talking about, there are people that need to be spoken to, witness interviews. It's an interview before it becomes an interrogation. If you're seeking information, uh, we can first of all, of course, find the witness. Sometimes they have skipped out of town or they're previously undisclosed, and you may be talking to one person and find out a potentially valuable witness that no one knew about before. And what do you do when you approach these people each case is different. I like to see as much discovery as the attorney will share so that I have complete encyclopedic knowledge of the case before I go out into the field. That way you are able to shoot from the hip. You can't go interview a witness with a list of questions because you might have only five minutes standing on the front door before they tell you to leave, or they might tell you to leave right away and you're going to get your questions in as you're being escorted down the steps. So the main thing that I think a private investigator can do is go out and find those pieces of information that the attorney needs to know. It's the, it's the who, what, why, when, how, where, that sort of information, the basic, basic questions that need to be answered for each case. Let me ask you this question, Susan. Why is the private investigator more qualified and or more appropriate than the lawyer sending someone out from the law office or the lawyer doing it themselves? 
Well, for one, a lawyer shouldn't always do it himself, even if he's really, really good at it, because then you might end up all of a sudden being a party, to, be, being part of the case. And uh, if you put your witness up there based on an interview that you've conducted, and then the witness flips on you, then you find yourself in an unfortunate position of having to testify. So send somebody else out into the field. Send somebody who's studied how to talk to people. Sometimes witnesses might want to cooperate with you, but they don't remember something. We are trained in how to extract information from people, and that's something that they don't necessarily teach you in law school, but they do teach it in courses of private investigator study. And it comes also with experience, but I think that the best thing for attorneys is to not send themselves, but to send somebody who's a professional in witness, witness interviews. Okay. So witness interviews is one general uh, consideration that we can think of. What are some other general uh, activities that we might think of or issue spot in our cases to uh, call a, a private investigator? Well, uh, I hate to harp on the witness interviews, but you might want to conduct backgrounds of the witness interviews that you just found. Say you find a witness that you think is terrific for your case. You may need to background that person because you want to make sure that there's nothing that's going to be a surprise to the attorney when you've got that witness up on the stand. So you're going to possibly do background investigation on that witness. Uh, same thing, you might want to do a background, if you're doing a criminal defense case, for example, you might want to background the prosecution's witnesses because you want to know if you might need to or want to impeach them. The background investigations are important no matter what kind of case. And I think we'll probably get into that as we discuss each further topic sure. of law. Sure. Now, what about investigating your own client? How often does that happen? Well, it happens for me all the time uh, because you know, sometimes most of my work is attorneys. But when I get a call from the general public, I mean, some of the cases can be very strange that people think space aliens are coming down. And, you know, basically you can determine pretty quick if there's a problem there. Uh, but if, if, it's a, if it's a bona fide case you think is possibly valid, but you're not sure, you, you might want to do a little bit of backgrounding on that client before you accept a case. You might even want to look to see if that client has been sued. Uh, are they bankrupt? Do you check PACER system and see if they don't have any money? Because unfortunately it is a business and we want to make sure we're getting paid. So you might want to background your own client just for that. You might want to see if they've gone through a couple other private investigators. That's a key that maybe there's a problem. And we share information even with our competitors. I might call up a private investigator and say, hey, so-and-so just called me. I understand you worked on the case. What's going on there? And then you might realize that's a client you might not want to take. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, another thing I know that often comes up and in the family law context, and now we're going to have a whole segment on family law, but um, asset searches and finding things, that's, I think, most people uh, come to mind when the client says, I know that the husband has a property here or assets there. Um, how much of that is actually the business in PI? It's a lot of the business uh, in, in a couple of different areas, not so much, for example, criminal defense, but um, domestic for certain. I mean, a lot of times one party thinks they're getting a raw deal, and they think that the other party has hidden away assets. I had one lady who was convinced that her husband had buried gold in her backyard, and we actually had a backhoe out there digging for bars of gold that didn't exist. But sometimes they do hide the assets, and it's, a, it's sometimes a difficult trail to find. It's sometimes an easy trail to find. Other cases where you're looking for hidden assets, obviously, are judgment collection cases. Lawyers themselves often get stiffed by their own clients, which always amazes me. 
But I get lawyers all the time calling me saying, you know, I got a client that owes me $30,000, you know, we haven't been able to collect, can you find the assets? The answer is yes and no. It's, 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 a, it's a complicated issue. It depends on how much discovery and how much do you have that I can look at. There's, there's easy answers where we can just do real estate, vehicles, aircraft. That's database stuff that I can do from a desk. But oftentimes to find the hidden assets, you've got to almost be a forensic accountant and look through the box or surveillance. And believe it or not, dumpster diving, which is something where it's valuable in any kind of case, but you look through the trash. And there's certain legalities of when that is, is allowed. It has to be taken out to the curb. When's it allowed and when it isn't, but you often, often will find a clue to a hidden asset in the trash. Very good. Before uh, we round out our first uh, segment, I'd like to ask a little bit of, of first of what you should look for when hiring a private investigator, and then we'll talk about rates, billing, and some things that our attorney audience might have uh, questions right up front. So first, what should you look for if you're an attorney and want to hire a private investigator? The best way is to speak to another attorney who you trust, who you know, and ask. Ask that person, and a lot of times on the courthouse steps, it's when I get a case. Somebody will say, hey, who did you use on that Brown case? And they'll say, I used Susan Carlson. Ask your fellow attorney, friends of yours, who they use. That is the best way. Um, next to that, you can do your own research. I, the one thing I don't recommend is just don't go to the yellow pages. You have to, they're not all created equal, just like not all lawyers are equal. You have to do a little bit of research. You can check out their web pages, but again, a web page is whatever somebody wants to put out there. So ask for a list of clients. If you find somebody that you're interested in, ask them if they can provide you a list. What other attorneys have they worked for? If they can't come up with a list, go to the next person on your list. That's a very good, that's a good advice. Um, as far as rates, uh, do the PIs bill similar to lawyers or uh, what can we expect? Is this something we pass on directly as a cost to the client? Um, what's the best way to? We really do bill similar to clients, and it's also similar to passing on the expenses of your paralegals. Uh, you can mark them up. We don't mark up expenses to attorneys, but generally we bill by the hour. Sometimes we will ballpark a case and give a flat rate quote. We'll take a retainer. And the longer you've been in, in the business as an investigator, the, the quicker you can think on your feet to know how much to ask for. Right. It's a big mistake that you make when you first start out is, is low-balling that, that retainer figure. And it doesn't look good to go back with your hand out right away needing more money. So the, the more experienced you are and the more you know how long something's going to take you, you ask for a retainer. And you keep records, a timesheet, just like attorneys do, and you bill off of that. Although... Most, most private investigators won't do 10-minute increments, 15-minute Quarter hour. Yeah, quarter hours, which is I know how a lot of attorneys used to bill. But it's, it's kind of most, most of us will model our billing after, after the way lawyers do. You know, and it's interesting that we do that as uh, publicists and law practice management people on our end, too. Um, yeah. You know, because, you know, we're, it was where a lot of us are used to working with uh, lawyers, um, and I know that it's, we sort of adopt and uh, morph into some very similar business practices. So that's great then that the attorneys understand how, how it works. So and they're really, you know, you can do flat rates for certain projects and estimate the amount of time, and it takes years of experience. How many years, again, have you been uh, doing? I've been a private investigator for almost 10 years. 10 years. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you see everything. Um, you, of course, you don't see everything because you always are surprised by mm -hmm. what's out there. But um, that's a significant amount of time to uh, really know how to ballpark and, and, and you try not to make a snap decision. Like I ask a lot of questions. 
I want, I don't have a, a, a quick answer to when somebody says, well, how much is this going to cost me? I start asking questions and I interview the attorney a little bit on the phone. What, you know, what do you know so far? What's, what stage of the case is in? How much discovery is there? And I want to get that discovery. And sometimes I'll give them a rough ballpark and then I'll say, I can write you a detailed report of costs after I read what you're going to send me. And then I can ballpark it even better. Right, right. Well, that's, that's great. In, uh, any other introductory information on how to select, find, or the business end of it? Again, just do your own homework. Don't, don't just assume that because somebody has a slick website that that's the person that you need. You, you have to ask questions, too. What's their experience? What's their forte? What are their credentials? What to look for? What organizations are they a member of? And what kind of, what kind of references can they provide you? Exactly. Thank you so much. Let's pause for our first sponsor break, and then we'll be back with Susan Carlson talking all about private investigators. For those of you who are just tuning in, you are listening to the Lawyer's Toolbox show. I miscorrectly uh, announced it as the Consumer's Law Journal. That's our Tuesday show. Uh, but the Lawyer's Toolbox show is our show on Thursdays, and we do bring uh, information and tips to help lawyers with the practice management aspects, whether it's anything from attorney marketing to hiring a private investigator uh, to issue spotting and other more complex practice areas. Uh, we're always interested in new content and what you want to hear, so always do uh, send us, drop us a line at, um, at ALRPRA. Our email, again, is info, I-N-F-O, at A-L-R-P-R-A dot com. Her first sponsor is the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme. She practices intellectual property law, but has a nice twist on it where she informally calls it marketing law. I know that marketing law is not a specific practice area, but it is something that's very useful. And when you need the right legal services to advance your creativity, you should call the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme. Attorney Nancy K. Ducharme brings big law firm experience and reputation to her intellectual property law firm, serving national corporate clients in the areas of trademark, copyright, internet law, and advertising law. You can find the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme by visiting nkdlaw.com and also by searching for the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme on Facebook. By clicking the like button on the law firm's business fan page, you'll receive periodic blog updates with recent developments in the rapidly changing field of intellectual property law. Now back to our Law Talk radio program. Again, we encourage listeners to call in with any questions at area code 917-889-9732, option 1 to be placed in the caller queue. Again, that's area code 917-889-9732, option 1. And as always, your emails are welcome at info at ALRPRA.com. Now back to our guest, Susan Carlson. All right, Susan, we were talking a little bit about general considerations in our first segment. Now let's get down to some uh, good practice areas, and we have identified the three practice areas that most of the work uh, occurs in. And again, the first is criminal uh, defense and criminal law, and then our third segment will talk about domestic relations and custody issues. Finally, our fourth segment will talk about personal injury and premise liability. But criminal law, now this is interesting, pre-trial and post-conviction, all of it. Mm -hmm. Pre-trial is where most of us work, that's, most of the work is before a trial and during a trial. And the first thing I would say that you really need to do is be on the same page with the attorney as to what is the theory of the case. And quite often I will get a call to become involved and the theory isn't quite clear yet. And it can sometimes be a fluid thing, like it can unfold as you're speaking to witnesses. But it's something that the lawyer and the private investigator have to really work closely because once you develop that theory, 
your witnesses, you're going to weave the theme of that theory in and out and try to sometimes guide the interviews based on what the theory of the case is. And, you know, the famous one you all learned in law school is the some other dude did it defense. If that's it, then you're going to be looking for who is the real killer or who's the real culprit. And it's going to conduct, it's going to, it's going to drive the way you interview your cases. So in the pre, pre-trial, that's the, the main thing is once you have that, then, then you work the case from there. Um, second, of course, is you, it, sometimes it can be budget-driven. You need to know uh, what is in the budget because there might be 30 witnesses that you think you should interview, but if there's only X amount of dollars, you've got to pick where's your biggest bang for the buck. And you um, normally want to do a case review, a file review, before you even run out and get started. So the attorney will send you the box of whatever the discovery is. You want to read the police reports, the supplemental reports. If there's any autopsy protocols, you want to read that. If there's any EMT reports, whatever's been written. And most importantly, you never interview a witness until you read what they've already said. So if you get the case and the attorney wants you to go out and interview somebody, but they haven't provided you with those police statements or what the witness statements are, wait. You just need to wait and read that first because you're not going to know while you're talking to somebody, if they've said something else, that may be where you want to zone in and really catch them and, and get them to tell you what really happened. So you're, you're pouring over the discovery before you go out into the field. And then uh, you might have to find the witnesses, uh, the addresses that they provide you, and they're supposed to provide you with current addresses, but they're not always current. And you have to target when are you going to go talk to this witness. Can you call ahead and make an appointment? Generally, no. So generally, you want to go early in the morning catch them by surprise, so to speak, and that's, that's a, a difficult one. You don't want to wake them up. They get really PO'd, and if you, if you wait too long, they've left. And if you're going to be a private investigator, you're going to be working a lot of Saturdays and Sundays because that's time to find people home. But that's the pre, pre-litigation is that you really need to see what, what is in the file and then what's missing from the file. Are there any crime scene photographs that exist? If not, get out there and take some pictures. Because if a witness says, oh, I saw him from my window, and you get out there and you're standing there and you see that there's a big tree with complete fall foliage and it would be impossible that that person could have seen it from the window, but nobody's been out there to take those pictures, that's a big key. So you want to go visit that scene, even if it's old. Even a lot of times we get cases that, you know, maybe they, they happened two years ago, which I wish I'd get the case earlier. But just because it was two years ago doesn't mean that there's not some piece of evidence that's there, whether or not... It's the lack of a piece of evidence, but you want to go out there, you want to check the lighting. If somebody says, oh, I clearly saw that, but there's no street lights, and you do a history on the weather that night, which you can do, and you can see that there was no moon, well, then you might want to question that person, you know, how did you see this? There's, there's no street light, you know, what? Oh, well, the light from the red van that was parked there. Oh, there was a red van? <laughs> you know, these are things that you just don't know until you start going out and, and working the case. Now, what about the post-conviction? Um, I'm sure there are a lot of cases where someone has, uh, you know, they take a deal um, during the initial case. Um, a lot of individuals and inmates are looking for post-conviction relief. Some people believe that they were wrongly convicted. Uh, how does this come? How does this come to you? What, well, what happens? a lot of people were wrongly convicted. The problem with the post-conviction work is that each time it moves through the courts and up to a higher court, you lose a window of, of what you can go in there with. 
You have to have new information, something new. Now, on an appeal, you can get an appeal based on ineffectiveness of counsel, God forbid, but it happens, or some witness that you know, maybe wasn't disclosed, those sort of things. But if, if you've lost your appeal, and then you come to like a post-conviction, then you, it, it's hard to investigate because it's almost like, you know, I tell lawyers I'm a really good investigator, but I'm a bad magician. I can't make things happen. You have to go find a witness that nobody knew about. And that's harder, but you, you, again, you just start with the witnesses that you already knew about, and you go and you start interviewing them. And oftentimes, I can learn a piece of information that was not known at the time. That's the piece that you're looking for is what, what's new, what wasn't available at the time. Or you go through the entire box of material and you realize that, you know, no DNA was ever run on something or the case is so old that they didn't have it back then or that the, the system wasn't as, as sophisticated as it is now. So part of my job then would be to make recommendations of what can we do forensically that couldn't have been done back. You know, I have a case I'm working on right now where a client was convicted 16 years ago. So what can we can do now that couldn't be done then? You know, there are things available. So that's part of what a private investigator does. And then your report, what's, I'm assuming that there's a detailed full report. Um, what kind of report, what, what is it similar to that a lawyer would uh, expect? Is it... There's always a report. Now, what's, what's a critical in criminal defense is that it's discoverable. So a lot of times I'm going to find out something that could hurt our client. I want to put that in a report. Obviously, we want to put down the good stuff, you know, the exculpatory information. So I will call the attorney and give him a verbal report. And then sometimes I will say, do you want this in, in a report? And a lot of times I'm instructed not to put certain things down because it, it, is, it is meant to be turned over. And on the top of the report, I'll go investigative report, attorney work product. Mm -hmm. And then we'll, we'll start it out with what is the assignment. You know, it's kind of why we work from a template. The assignment is at the request of attorney John Q. Public, Carlson Investigations was asked to conduct an uh, investigation into the circumstances of case versus, you know, we started out with the basics. And then you go specifically we were asked to go interview Mary Q. Public as to what she saw the night of whatever. And then you get to the nitty-gritty. You go detailed narrative. And this is all based on the way police do it, although we've tweaked it to where it's geared towards the attorney. But you go detailed narrative, and you'll say the following is information uh, that we learned from interviewing Mary K. Public, and it's not verbatim unless otherwise noted. And whenever I'm interviewing somebody, I'm either tape recording it, and we have to do that with disclosing it. You can't surreptitiously tape record. Or I'm taking notes. Sometimes you can't take notes because it's going to turn the witness off. But my report is a detailed narrative of what I learned. And then it's concluded with a summary. And uh, sometimes I would put recommendations at the end of it that I've learned that attorneys don't really want that in writing. So the, the report really starts out with what is the assignment, and then specifically, you know, the, the, what's the assignment is the bigger picture, specifically is the purpose of this report, this interview or this crime scene investigation, whatever it was, and then the detailed narrative, what you learned, the information that you developed in, in, a, in a form to where that defense attorney can turn that over to the prosecutor. And the whole rest of the case can depend on what happens when that report gets turned over, if there's really good stuff in there or not. 
Now, how often does the state uh, cross-examine, or how often are you called to testify uh, as to your report in a criminal proceeding? I haven't been called often. A lot of times, plea bargains are made. I mean, actually, most cases, at least that I work in Cook County and Lake County, most cases that I work on don't necessarily result in a trial. They're, they're pled out. Or maybe an evidentiary hearing on a motion to suppress. And to tell you the truth, um, that it, we don't win those too often. Mm-hmm. Um, but quite often, if the prosecutor then sees my report that I learned something they didn't know that's really good for our client, but it, you know nobody wants a trial, then somebody's going to offer up, uh, you know, whether the whether the prosecutor does it or whether my defense attorney client does it. It's there in black and white that you say, you know, listen, Mr. Prosecutor, here's what we've got now. And if you go to trial, you know, this is, you know, what we've got. So oftentimes these reports are so important because it, it, it can decide whether the case goes to trial. Certainly. And, I mean, especially where the state isn't going to always have the resources on all these cases to have their own independent uh, PI get out there and cross-check and, you know, do, you know, as, as we do in civil cases where we'll have dueling experts. It's, it's just you're asking the state to do more work than the state is. Uh, well, there. but I disagree with that because the state, the government, has the police. And they do the work, you know, for free, basically, whereas the defendant client has to pay for it. So we're more the little guys, you know, going up against the big guys because they've got more unlimited sources than most defendants do. And what I'm doing is really going back and redoing what the police did and finding out things that maybe they didn't put in their report. Because, you know what, they're not always honest. Mm-hmm. Newsflash. So sometimes, you know, they have the government resources, and I've got to go in and bust those resources and, and figure out what didn't they ask. And I, I had a case once, it was a major high-profile murder case, and I talked to a witness and found out some very interesting stuff, and all of a sudden I got a call from the state's attorney saying they wanted to talk to me about it. Well, I know, you know, I don't go talking to them without my attorney saying it's okay. And, and the attorney said, oh, no, I want you to talk to them. So they've read my report, and this is like blockbuster information, and he comes in with this big cheese. I was, like, really intimidated. And he goes, well, how did you get that? You know, we talked to that witness, and, you know, we didn't find that out. And I said, because I asked. Right. And, and you know, here's the thing where, where I – and I understand that the government has their resources and the cops and detectives are out there doing their thing. But I think that there's something different psychologically when someone is talking to a private investigator versus talking to a police officer. It just seems like people might be more open. In the well, that's definitely the truth. Yeah. And um, the majority of my investigations actually take me into, I term it, the hood – I work a lot of gang crime investigations, and I go into those neighborhoods, and people will be mortified, but the first thing I do when I go up to approach people and I got to talk to them, I throw up my hands and I say, don't shoot me, I'm not the police. Yeah. And I'm joking, you know, when I say it, but it's a real icebreaker. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like they're so curious as to who I am. <laughs> they do tell me things that they don't tell the police for, for one of two reasons. Either they're fear, fearful of the police, or they do think of criminal defense people as white hats. You know, we're the good guys in those neighborhoods. We're the good guys. I love it. So much about criminal law. Um, and so, again, pre-trial and post-conviction, uh, all sorts of good information. Again, if you want to find more information about Susan Carlson and Carlson Investigations, you can go to SusanCarlsonInvestigations.com. And we will be right back after our second sponsor break to talk a little about domestic relations and custody cases. 
Our second sponsor today is Jim Thompson from the Midwest Consulting Group. He's a seasoned attorney and marketing coach you need to talk to if you want more clients. Jim Thompson's program called Get Clients Now will help you take the crucial steps towards increasing your firm's revenue. The Get Clients Now program employs various time-honored techniques to help you attract new business and encourage referrals. Jim is going to be a recurring guest on the Lawyer's Toolbox show regarding attorney marketing. To learn more about Jim Thompson and the Midwest Consulting Group, please visit MidwestConsultants.net. Also check out his testimonials on Facebook by searching Get Clients Now. ALRPRA strongly endorses the Get Clients Now program and understands the personal accountability component of this course. You can get in touch with Jim Thompson today by visiting MidwestConsultants.net. A reminder to those of you out there listening who have just tuned in, you are listening to the Lawyer's Toolbox on ALRPRA's Law Talk Radio. The call-in number is area code 917-889-9732. You can press option 1 to be placed in the queue if you have a question. Of course, as we realize that many of you listen to our programs on the archive links as you uh, find them on Facebook or LinkedIn or on different websites, you can always send a question for any of our guests or a comment to info at ALRPRA. ALRPRA.com. Again, that's info at ALRPRA.com. We do appreciate all your feedback for questions for future guests and of guests we've had on the show, and we freely connect people with our experts and guests we do have appearing on the program. So we are now going back to Susan Carlson and Carlson Investigations and going to be talking a little bit about domestic relations and custody issues. We apologize for a temporary delay there in our broadcast, a little bit of technical difficulties. Back now to Susan Carlson. Okay, Susan, we were talking a little bit about uh, criminal uh, work before, the pretrial and the post-conviction. Now let's talk a little bit about domestic relations and custody considerations. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll talk about um, the divorce aspect of it first. And Unlike, I mean, every case is important, obviously, but unlike the criminal defense when somebody's freedom or very life is at stake, this is different. This is someone's emotional life and financial freedom is at stake. And it is, it is as equally important to them as it, as it is to the defendants, the criminal defendants. But the case law and, and, and what they need for their case is so different because in Illinois, this is a no-fault state. Now, I know this program is broadcast in other states as well, so I'm not familiar with all of the law, but uh, people come into my office and they'll call me on the phone and they will say, you know, my husband is cheating and I want all of the assets. And I, I spend a lot of time trying to educate people that, look, you know, they'll say, I want, to, I want you to prove it. I want you to get that photo, you know, that, that money shot. And I, I actually spend a lot of time talking them out of it because they'll say, you know, Look, he can be having an affair with every one of the Chicago Bears cheerleaders, and unless he's doing it in front of your kids, it really isn't going to matter. The judge doesn't want to know because it's, it's a no-fault state, and, and they don't have to establish that sort of thing. But a lot of times people still want to know, and I respect that because, you know, again, another motto of mine is because sometimes you just need to know. So if they want to go forward knowing that this isn't going to be part of their case, whether or not somebody's having an affair, if they still want to go forward, then I do. And I, first, I also do want to make sure that they are represented. I, I, I want to make sure they have a lawyer, and I want to say, you know, is your lawyer on board with this? Now, sometimes they haven't gotten to the part yet where they know they want a divorce, and mm -hmm. that's okay, because sometimes that money shot is what makes them decide, you know, I've had it, 
I want to move on with my life, I want to divorce this person. So there's sort of different stages. There's, there's pre-divorce and there's during divorce. And then there's like the after-divorce case. So there's a lot of that. But obviously surveillance is involved. And people will say, well, you know, I had somebody call me just yesterday. It was so irritating. They say, well, how do, you, I, how do you know? I want to find out, you know, who my husband is cheating with. How do you know? And I give them my spiel. And I say, well, you know, a lot of it is surveillance. And she goes, well, I don't, I, I don't want to know that way. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she goes, well, can you tap his phones and put a program on the computer? And I said, uh, no. She goes, well, why not? And I said, well, because it's about 16 ways of illegal. Hmm. You know, that's a quick way. Sure, you can put the GPS on the car. You can put a Spectre Pro on the, pro, you know, the key loggers on the computer. But it's illegal. So the good old-fashioned way is surveillance. And there's, there's other ways to do that, but it probably would take too long for the show. But surveillance, and what do you do with the surveillance? I mean, and, and there's an art to that. It's not just driving around and following somebody. You're going to get caught. Somebody's going to look in their rearview mirror and notice you. So there's a way, and there's stakeouts, which are not moving surveillances. But you have to have good camera gear. You have to be able to shoot in the low light from far away. You have to be able to anticipate. And you also have to work with your client to get information. What are this person's habits? If I lose them, where, where might I pick them up? Because you do lose people. It's not 100% guaranteed that you're going to find them like the first time out either. Like you really have to explain to your client, this is sometimes, you know, not an easy fix. This might go on for a while. And, you know, how much are you willing to put in financially and emotionally into this? And you'd be surprised. You know, people really want that answer. Mm -hmm. But the surveillance is a, is a big thing. And then the, the custody issues are, are the sad part of it. Because, um, unfortunately, and those of you out there that practice family law know that quite often the children are used as pawns in these cases. And uh, what they will do with the kids is sometimes very unfortunate. I've been involved in, in several cases where one parent has accused the other of some sort of abuse. And I'm trying to prove that the abuse hasn't happened or I'm trying to prove that it has, depending on which side I'm working on. And oftentimes it's, it's, it's really bad because they're, they're used in a bad way. There's a lot of alienation of affection, or, or um, parental alienation, excuse me, mm -hmm. if you the wrong term. But where, and you know, you have to get evidence of that because the judges, the courts, do not like to hear that at all. But if it's really blatant and there's witnesses, you know, you have to interview neighbors sometimes. If the parent, if one parent is constantly belittling the other parent and saying terrible negative things, that does come into play. Those are those are things that the attorney can use in court if, if the private investigator is able to develop a case that shows that one parent is trying to alienate the other parent. And then, of course, living conditions. Sometimes, you know, we need to, to prove that there's the, the correct living conditions. Is, are there enough bedrooms? Is it a crappy neighborhood? Is, are there sex offenders nearby? I mean, you'd be surprised what people forget to look for. But if there's small children, you can easily do right on the computer a registered sex offender look. And if there's 50 of them living within a five-mile radius, that parent has a legitimate cause to petition the court to have, you know, the other parent to make that one move or to get the custody because you can't put your kids in risk like that. So the child custody issues, oftentimes one parent will want to prove that the other is an alcoholic or a drug abuser. And there are ways to do that, either with surveillance or going through their garbage, a couple of different, different things that you can do. There's uh, experimental... I call it experimental, but the people that, that manufacture it don't. But there's a, a drug swipe product that you can actually swipe on people's things that handle to determine if they've used drugs. And I know that this has been used in cases. 
I don't personally use it because I, I think it's too risky to accuse somebody of that, but I know that it is a tool that you can use to, to try to show if a parent is on drugs. Here's a question. What about international issues? When someone, uh, what would you uh, say to a hypothetical client who said, I fear that my spouse is going to remove the child to another country or leave the country. I just can't tell, but they've been acting strange. Well, you, you pray that the country that they're concerned about is a member of the Hague because certain countries are not. And if your child gets taken there, you are really in a bad way. And I just, just had that happen, and um, it was really sad because the child did get taken and there's nothing we could do about it. But you try to get the information beforehand, and then it's really the lawyer's job. There's not much I can do. Um, and we try to get police cooperation. Um, I just I worked a case where the, it was an illegal alien who was talking about taking this child to Morocco, and that's not a place where you want your child to go. And even though this, this person was undocumented, I could not get anybody to deport him. And I, I, I mean, it wasn't for lack of trying. I said, here's where he's at, here's where he's going to be at. Nobody would pick him up, and sure enough, he took the child. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting. Um, here's another question. In divorce and family law, I wonder how many times uh, you'll get calls from people who say, well, we need a process server to serve this person, and then um, maybe those lawyers don't understand that there's more that can be done in the family law case. Does that occur, and do you make those suggestions? Oh, sure. Now, in Cook County, the sheriff has to serve original documents yeah, first. Is there any way around that? Yes. In the domestic courts, you are allowed to get a special appointment without going through the sheriff. Every other court, you have to try to go through the sheriff first. In domestic law, somewhere long ago, that got changed. And the attorney needs to go and first find the process server that you want to use, and then you just file. It's just a clerk, you know, clerk-stamped motion for a, a special appointment, and get the process server appointed. And in Illinois, actually, anybody who's over the age of 18 and not a party to the case can be appointed a special process server. If you appoint somebody that has an agency like mine, it's advantageous to appoint the agency. That way, anybody who works for me can go serve the papers. So if you have one person appointed and the person that you're serving is avoiding and they see you, then it's going to be harder for you the next time to go out. They're going to be looking for you and they're going to be even better at hiding. Whereas if you appoint an agency and anybody who works for your agency can go, you know, I've got one guy who works for me who's 80. I have a 28-year-old girl. I've got a 23-year-old son. I've got myself. I've got, you know, people that we can switch it up. And although I have a lot of disguises, it's still best to have actually different people that can go out and serve process. Do you have any uh, good creative stories on, uh, on serving people you want to share? Well, I do have, I suppose, you know, I get asked this question a lot, and I think the funniest one was the Easter basket, and I was just briefly telling you about this. I got a call at the last minute, this was a couple years ago, a lady had been dodging and like the alias, alias, alias summons was about to run out and they had like a two-year statute of limitations. This woman had to be served and he goes, can you do this? And I said, sure, I can do this. Then okay, how can I do this? So I was driving to her house and we can serve on Sundays here in Illinois. Lots of states you can't, but Illinois you can, Florida you cannot. But this was an Illinois case, and it was a Sunday. I was driving to her apartment, and I stopped at the Walgreens for some gum, and I saw Easter baskets with the, you know, the cellophane wrapping, and I said, oh, this might be a way to get her to open the door. So I rang her doorbell, and I was kind of holding the basket over myself, and sure enough, she answered the door, and I said, oh, are you Mrs. So-and-so? 
you have to identify, you have to make sure it's the right person. And she said, yeah. And I said, oh, here, I have this Easter basket for you. And she goes, oh, wow, you know, who, who sent this? And I said, well, here, there's a card in there. And you can't just give somebody the Easter basket. You actually have to hand them the summons, and you have to tell them that it's a summons. You can't just hand it in an enclosed card. So I took out the summons that I carefully folded into quarters so it would look like it was part of the card. And I handed it to her, and I said, ma'am, you've been served. This is a lawsuit. You need to get a lawyer. And she just was shocked and stood there with her mouth hanging open, and I don't know what possessed me, but I took the Easter basket back from her. She was still holding it. Got back in my car and ate the chocolate on the way home. <laughs> <laughs> so good, so good. They're not always usually that dramatic. <laughs> usually you could just ring the doorbell, but, you know, you do have to sometimes be creative. Any other final uh, thoughts that you want to leave us with the area of domestic relations and custody? Um, no, I think, I think it's important to not build clients' expectations. Again, I really try to tell them that sometimes they don't need an investigator. They need a good lawyer. A good divorce lawyer is better than a bad investigator. Very good. All right, we're going to pause for our third sponsor break, and then we're back with Susan Carlson. Again, we already covered general considerations of criminal law, uh, domestic relations and custody. We're going to round out our final uh, segment of the show by talking about personal injury and premises liability. But first, a break and message from our third sponsor. Our third sponsor today is credit damage expert George Finder. He can put a dollar amount on damage to your credit reputation. George Finder is one of the only credit damage experts in the country, and attorneys and plaintiffs who have retained his services have earned huge damage awards in various practice areas, such as personal injury, employment law, family, and general civil litigation. By learning to incorporate the credit damage questions into the intake process, you and your staff will learn to spot credit damage events worthy of retaining George Finder's credit damage analysis services. Currently, George Finder is working on CLE presentations uh, throughout the country. Right now, there are several in California, and they will be coming to a state near you soon where paralegals will be qualified to take uh, credit damage issues during the intake process. Also, right now, we have a uh, deal for any of our listeners who contact George Finder and tell them that they heard about him on Law Talk Radio. They will receive free of charge one hour of CLE presentation. So, lawyers, you'll grab a pen, take down this email address, and respond to this offer when you get a chance. It's Credit Damage Associates at gmx.com. That's the email, and that's plural, Credit Damage Associates at gmx.com. Available nationwide, Credit Damage Expert George Finder's website is full of resources. Check out creditdamageexpert.com. Again, creditdamageexpert.com to learn more about George Finder and expert services. Uh, we want to also remind our listeners out there, if you do have a question and want to dial into the show at any time, 917-889-9732, option one, also email info at alrpra.com. Again, now uh, we're turning back to Susan Carlson. We've been talking about different things that a private investigator can do in different practice areas, and now we're going to talk a little bit about personal injury and premises liability. Susan, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, personal injury and premise liability, what uh, our attorneys might not um, know or uh, as far as how to use a, a private investigator or what types of situations and um, general considerations with PI and premise liability. First of all, this is one of my favorite areas to practice in because they are so complex. Each one is different and each one involves something totally new that when you get into it, you almost have to become an expert in that, that field. And what the attorney can do, the, 
biggest favor to the attorney and to the attorney's client is to call a private investigator as soon as you get the case. I've had calls, I just had two calls last week, one for a premises liability, a slip and fall, and one for an auto accident that occurred four years ago. Now, there's really not a lot you can do at that point. I mean, you can, but had I been called four years earlier, there's more you can do. So the biggest thing, if I can get one point across, is call a private investigator as soon as you can. And the obvious things, of course, is to go out and document the scene because it's going to look different. If it's an auto accident, you need to get somebody out there taking pictures of what did the car see? Is it a windy road? Where were the signs? How many feet? What kind of signs were there? What is the lighting? Uh, what does the car look like? And you want to see it before it gets fixed. You want to see what the other car looks like before it gets fixed. If it is a... Um, a personal injury case, say a forklift accident, you want to get out there right away and talk to the people that were working while fresh in their minds. You need to see the piece of damaged goods because it might also be a premises liability and a, and a personal injury case. You can go for a lot of different defendants if you get out there early enough and see what else is there, what other piece of equipment might have had a factor in it. And the other thing that a private investigator can do is to help you find the right experts because these are the cases that really are the battle of the experts. And um, I did a revolving door uh, case actually that the experts became very important. And you know I didn't know at the time that revolving doors are calibrated at a certain amount of revelations per minute. And just because I learned this and just because I went out with my camera and my stopwatch and timed it, that doesn't mean anything. We need an expert that can come out and say it. So. You can, you can really search out the experts and do some pre-legwork for the attorneys, and then it's very important also to profile your experts and the other side's experts because it does become a dueling battle of the experts. And there are ways to even go back in and see how that expert has testified in other cases. If they've written publications and, say, on page 17 of their review in the ANSI journal, they said one thing, but they, you've been hired them to say something else, you better know this. Your attorney doesn't want to find this out on the witness stand. So these are things for both premises liability and personal injury that become fascinating, very interesting to work on. Now, this is another area where uh, there may be a lot of depositions going on. Uh, how often is the investigator deposed? Oh, the investigator is not deposed as much as the witnesses are, are the, you know, the expert witnesses and the witnesses themselves. Mm -hmm. The only time that I've been deposed in a case like that is if the witness that I've found and gives me some sort of statement says something different. Mm -hmm. Then, then my, my deposition might become important. Mm -hmm. but the, the private investigator doesn't want to inject themselves to be part of the case. They want to present the case. We don't, if we're all of a sudden being witnesses ourselves, that's a problem. You don't want to be deposed. You want, you want your evidence to speak for itself. You want your witnesses to speak for themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, any other thoughts on personal injury or premise liability? We have some time left. Do you want to talk about some other practice areas? Or? Well, let's, let's go back to talking about the interviews because, again, that's, it, it applies to this as well. And I touched upon it a little bit, like if it's a construction accident, you want to talk to the people that were there. And if you're getting called way later, you may need to do some information as to who was working those shifts. They might not be with the company anymore. Uh, if it's a car accident, you want to know what time of day it was. Are there delivery men in the area at that time of day? 
Is there a school bus that gets dropped off there at 3.30 every day? You might need to think and, and think outside the box, like there might not be a witness that's listed on the accident report, but you, you're going to develop the witness. That's what we do. And then we're going to need to go and talk to that witness. So again, how to approach that witness and which depends a lot on which side you're working for as to how to approach them if you're on the plaintiff or the defendant side. And most of what I do is the plaintiff side. And usually people don't want to talk to you. It depends on how you ask. And, you know, I just gave a seminar on this in Indianapolis, and people would say, well, how do you get that information? And I know this seems very basic, but you ask nicely. And, and, and you don't go in with a cop attitude. You don't go in, like, authoritative, like, I need you to tell me this. You go more like, you know, I think you may have some information, and I really need your help. If you say, I need your help, it's very different than tell me what happened. Mm -hmm. So depending on which side you're on is going to determine how you're going to interview that witness. But again, there's so much study and planning that goes on to witness interviews. And as you can see, every single aspect of law involves talking to people. That's what I'd really like to, to drive home is to get somebody that can go out there and can talk to people and, and people of all areas and all ethnicities, age groups, um, you know, you've got to be able to go and talk to the country club set as well as you can go and talk to people in the hood. And sometimes you, you have to pass it on to somebody else. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you realize, you know what, I'm not the right person for that. Who is? So we know who to find, you know, I'm a member of a lot of different organizations and any good private investigator, when you're looking for one, you ask them, what organizations are you a member of? If we need a witness interviewed in Dallas, Texas, well, somebody's not going to fly me to Dallas, Texas, but I know exactly who to call in Dallas, Texas, because they're members of the same group. But it's that witness interview. Make sure you get people that, that are comfortable talking and have had some sort of education and study in how to interview witnesses. Very good information. Now, in the time we have remaining, we're just going to talk about uh, some of the considerations that we might talk on some follow-up shows. Mm -hmm. So where are some more in-depth uh, areas that we might look look into uh, following this show? Well, I think probably each of the things that we've talked about could be expanded. I mean, like process service itself, although you might not think of it as an investigation, but it quite often is because if you have, if you have a difficult serve and if you get your alias alias, that means, you know, somebody hadn't been able to serve that person before. So you might want to do a little investigation on, on that before you go out there. We could talk a lot about background investigations and asset investigations. We've just touched upon them. And background investigations, when somebody calls me and they say, I want you to do a background investigation, the next thing they'll say is, what does it cost? Depends on what you need it for. Right. If it's for pre-employment, that's a totally different thing than if it's for you're considering going into business with somebody. You know, I mean, they're, they're similar, but there's more in-depth. If it's a lot of a lot of background investigations are going to involve a lot of social media research, monitoring of people's Facebooks and that sort of thing. Uh, the obvious is criminal backgrounds, but you might also want to check to see if they're parties of lawsuits, plaintiff and defendant. And if you're looking for hidden assets, you might want to see if they're a plaintiff in a personal injury case. And then you might want to read that file and see how likely they are to recover a big chunk of money, because you can go in and put a garnishment on that. So background investigations, assets, those are things that you know, really could be delved into further. Criminal defense is, is way more in-depth than when we talked about 
There's also mitigation uh, after that somebody's convicted and sentencing, you know, what mitigating factors might be, what, what do you want to bring to the court that they should know about the defendant. Um, criminal defense itself is um, it's a, it's a highly specialized area that there's so many different aspects of that and how to go through the discovery process. And one of the things that you uh, keyed in on is social media, and there recently I have cases that are coming down now. Um, I listened to an ABA presentation uh, not long ago about some of the courts that are on the East Coast deciding some of these cases as the use has come up with social media. And also that is going to be uh, attorney Mark Harris is going to present that uh, segment when we have our ALRPRA um, social media, uh, the lawyers avoiding pitfalls presentation I spoke of earlier. That's again going to be on October 19th uh, in the morning and October 27th in the afternoon. So do check out our Facebook, facebook.com forward slash ALRPRA for more info on that and links to the registration for that event. So um, Susan, uh, so we're going to do some follow-up shows mm -hmm. on some of these topics and I want to thank you so much for being here today to generally introduce uh, the topic of private investigation and Hopefully our audience uh, members out there have a little bit more that they can think about so that they should issue spot next time they mm -hmm. have a case or audit your current caseload and think about what are you having a hard time proving, mm -hmm. what are you having a hard time, uh, well, you uh, here, what, what, what should they look at if they want or to audit their look, case look file? Look back at an old case and just as an educational experience to yourself, look back at an old case where perhaps you didn't use a private investigator. And now that you've heard these things that we've touched on, you could think to yourself, hmm, if I had known somebody, could I have found out this piece of information? Or what would have happened if we had talked to so-and-so? And, and just talking about the social networking and that sort of thing, I mean, these days it's incredible. I can find out what people have ordered on Amazon. You know, I mean, it, it's everything. It's, thing, it's not just going to somebody's Facebook wall. It's, it's complete in-depth character of, you know, who people are when you want to do a real complete background. You look at their pictures. Are they holding lots of drinks in their hands? <laughs> you know, you might want to take those off your Facebook picture, Facebook walls right now because somebody's looking at them. Untag yourself. Your boss knows. <laughs> yes, or, you know, or, or some private investigator knows. <laughs> all right. All very good. What a fun show. I always enjoy uh, new things. Um, again, I think that there are so many experts out there that are underutilized by attorneys, and it really is the challenge um, of a lot of attorneys and uh, law firms to learn to divide and conquer and have a collaborative effort. Um, I know that Susan works with a lot of attorneys. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to let you finish your sentence oh. and then say I want to say one thing. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. If, if you get the opportunity when you're, when you're first accepting your case from your client, that's the time to sell them on investigative services because if you've worked the case for a year, and then all of a sudden you realize that you need to call in a private investigator, it's hard to go back to your client and ask for more money. Mm -hmm. But when you first get that case in, especially in personal injury, especially in criminal defense, right then and there say, you know what, we need X amount for an investigator. Because otherwise it's going to either come out of your pocket or they're going to think it should be coming out of your pocket or the fee that's going to be allocated to it later isn't going to be enough. Sure, sure. So uh, how can someone get in touch with you other than on the website, let's say any of our attorneys out there listening, if you have a case or you think you want to get, to get more information, um, let's, uh, how do they get in touch with you? you give a free consultation to yeah. these lawyers who call? Okay, how yeah. do they? I, I do on the phone anytime. Should I give my phone number? Yeah, go for it. 847-491-9182. 
Um, and if somebody wants to come into my office, I, I will, I'll give a free consultation. But I won't go to your office for free, sorry. What's that? I won't go down to their office for free. It, it's just too much time. You know, no, it takes me away from other stuff. But if somebody wants to come to me or on the phone, I can tell you on the phone whether or not it's a case for a private investigator. And if it's not my area or if it's somebody that can do it better than me, I can put you in touch with those people too. Okay. But I do think it's a good idea to call, because especially if you've not worked with a private investigator before, because people don't realize what it is we do. And, you know, back to the thing you said when you opened, you know, you investigate before you litigate, because you don't want to go in there at the last minute, and you can be, the, you can be Clarence Darrow, but if you don't have the best piece of information, if you don't have the best knowledge, and the other side does, if the other side has more information than you do, chances are you could have a bad outcome. Okay. Now, what's that telephone number again, and where's your office located? I'm located in Evanston, and the number is 847-491-9182. Looks like we've got a caller here. We are, we'll take our caller. Caller, go ahead. Hey, hello? Can you hear yes, me? Yes, you're on the air. Oh, hi. Uh, this is Sandy. I'm the Spiritual Garden, but I was just, uh, I, I saw you on and, and I clicked on in here and I found it very interesting. A lot of good information and held my attention. I'm a, I'm a professional psychic and I have the Spiritual Garden uh, show and we're always talking about metaphysical things and how the law is, you know, and metaphysics are coming together as, as things go by. But you said something that really made me kind of chuckle. You were talking about, you know, how you can look at a picture and if they're holding glasses, um, you know, and they're drinking or whatever. And uh, very often I'll have a lady that will ask me about, you know, a gentleman or something like that. And, and I had one, just this just happened a couple of days ago, and she said, well, he has a beauty, he's absolutely gorgeous, and he's sitting there with a, a glass in his hand. I said, is it whiskey? <laughs> she said, yes. And I said, well, that's a pretty good sign right there that he had to have that in his hand to have his picture made. And I said, tells you something about him right there. She said, oh, my gosh, I never even thought about that. And I, and I just found that very interesting because that's true. You can look at a picture and tell a great deal about what's going on. It's only a clue. You have to be very careful not to just assume that because yep. the is in the hand that the guy's an alcoholic. Right. But you could assume things. You could assume that maybe he's a party boy or he goes out a lot yeah. or that it is a crutch, you know, and it's just one small tool. Oh yes, it is. But it's uh, for women that are uh, that are dating in a wide range of. Uh, well, it's a wide range, as you know, without me even going into. It. But I just, I really enjoyed the show, so I just was stopped by. I heard it. I really liked what I heard, and uh, and I just wanted to share that with you. Really, that was it. Thank you so much. And You're certainly, if, if you know any lawyers out there or other people uh, who are getting divorced and. Um, that, you know, these things come up or you, you encounter anything with the legal profession, um, you know, remember that there are other, other professionals out there to help. Susan here is a great private investigator. My agency, we're a law practice management agency. I primarily work as a publicist. You know, we really? also do this. So, oh, yeah, public relations and marketing for law firms. So, um, it, it's let, me, let me inject something there then because, yeah, yeah I, you've got my brain just, started to spin on that just a little bit because I'm a 30-year uh, psychic counselor or life coach, however you want to view me, depending on the show that I'm on or what seminar, that sort of thing. But I also write for children. Um, but the, the reality is, yes, 
I think that uh, we certainly see, certainly we've seen, when you think of metaphysical, you know, you think of, oh, that's that category over there, but the reality is medical and metaphysical and metaphysicians, all that, all those words, if you just, you can almost make a salad out of all of them now because everybody's kind of coming together. And the metaphysical world is such a big world. It's such a big movement of people. All the law is coming in there. And there are people that would like your services. Absolutely. Well, we're running out of time, so I do have to let you go. Again, uh, professionals, having the right professionals and the team of professionals to help you regardless of the situation um, is something that is such a very valuable thing. So, again, thank you, Susan, for being on the show today. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you to all of our listeners out there and those of our guests who call in with questions from time to time. We always appreciate your uh, feedback. We'd also like to thank our sponsors today. We had number one, the law, Intellectual Property Law Office of Nancy K. Ducharme, again, for marketing law and trademarks and copyright. We had Jim Thompson of Midwest Consulting Group, who can help you get more clients now, and credit damage expert George Finder, who can put a dollar amount on damages to credit ratings. Again, as a disclaimer, this is a general information program, and the advice shared on this show does not constitute legal advice. Results may vary and are based on specific facts and location. Communication with our attorney guests among guests and callers on this show does not give rise to an attorney-client or other professional relationship. And if you have any further questions, you're always encouraged to consult with an attorney or professional in your area. Finally, all callers do remain confidential and all rights to this broadcast are reserved by ALRPRA Incorporated. These Law Talk Radio broadcasts are programmed to bring our attorney and non-attorney audiences the tips, tools, and practice area information they can use to be better informed practitioners and consumers of legal services. With guests and listeners located nationwide, we appreciate the opportunity to use this socially networked radio program to bring people together and share collective intelligence. Again, this is Nick Augustine for ALR PRA Incorporated, and we thank you for your time.